Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Philosophy of Sex. Welcome to The Philosophy of Sex. I'm your host, Caroline Morrow-Hammond. On the face of it, the sex industry appears to be a sex-positive haven. Growing at rapid pace, it's become highly competitive and an attractive investment opportunity for those with a buck or many to spare. However, with this comes the expected, individuals willing to put profit over honesty and integrity. Despite appearances, the sex toy industry in Australia and elsewhere is hugely male-dominated. Greenwashing is quickly becoming part of the industry's rhetoric, and social ideas like feminism are frequently being co-opted for marketing purposes by companies who appear to be doing less than walking the talk. Layer on top of this the unregulated nature of the industry, and you have a recipe that is attracting cowboys by the dozen. Selling sex toys is about more than selling pink dildos, sexual wellness, and female empowerment. The idea of this being all it takes feels pretty outdated to me. I believe that consumers are also smarter than this. No one is better placed to comment on these issues than Alicia Williams, the founder of Rosewell. Rosewell is a sex care brand based in Brisbane, Australia. And Alicia started the company roughly three years ago, and the brand has become hugely popular. I'm constantly impressed by the level of knowledge and care that goes into Rosewell products, particularly in their manufacturing and supply chain processes. I'm really proud that we stock them on Becoming. In this episode, Alicia and I share our experiences working in the sex industry in Australia. We discuss what it's like working as young women in a male-dominated industry, the social implications of branding, and the current ethical plights of the sex industry. If you'd like to learn more about these issues, I'd also recommend listening to our episode on sex toys from season one. In the meantime, enjoy my conversation with Alicia. So I would love if you could tell me about how you came to found Rosewell. Basically, I had a dinner party with some girlfriends and we spent so many hours, I'm too embarrassed to admit, talking about skincare and essentially arguing about which brands were better. And I realized during this conversation that most of the women that were sitting with me had all been in long-term relationships. And I just had this overwhelming urge to ask how often they had sex. And it was the most awkward 30 seconds of silence that had ever followed. And being very naturally curious, I I kind of let that marinate in my head and kind of started questioning why that was, that we'd spent all this time talking about skincare. But no one would talk about sex when arguably they're equally important. And I think that's kind of the light bulb moment of me questioning why was it so easy to go by skincare but really awkward to talk and buy products to do with sex care? And when I started looking online at the most obvious choices, the bright yellow adult stores in the corners of random suburbs and the honey bedettes of the world that were, you know, six foot four posters of very beautiful women, it became glaringly obvious. So from that point on, I became completely fixated with the problem. Very obsessive. And I, I was really lucky that I had some friends of mine who had worked in product design, who had businesses, and I just started harassing them with questions. And what started was an eight-month journey into learning everything I could about sex toys, realizing that they were unregulated. And as a law student, that completely shocked me. And I just took a huge leap, did as much research as I could, and just started the process of trying to figure out how to create a product in that industry. So the idea was essentially me being very curious about a problem Mm. and obsessing about it. And I'm trying to, I think 
you know, any woman that's listening to this podcast will be able to relate to that conversation where you're sitting with a group of friends and it becomes really awkward when something comes up around sex. What were some of the answers? Like, can you remember the answers that you got to that question when you asked? Oh, crystal clear. One of my girlfriends um, had been with her partner for 11 years and she simply said, we have sex enough. And I said, what are the parameters of enough? And she said, oh, I don't really want to tell you. And I said, but why? Mm. What, like, why don't we talk about this? And another one of my girlfriends said that she hadn't had sex with her then husband in eight weeks. And I said, is that unusual? And then from that point on, we basically snowballed into me asking, okay, but do you masturbate? Do you have sex just in the bedroom? Like, why do we all have such different experiences, but we have arguably very similar lives? Mm. So I remember that conversation because I I told everybody about it afterwards. I was like, you wouldn't believe how awkward this was. It was like you could just drop a pin and it was mm. oh, pure silence. It's a crazy thing, right, because... You often, you know, you go out to a bar, for example, you'll hear women talking about sort of one night stands or particular types of sexual experiences that they've had. But anything where it relates to genuine intimacy, their relationships with their partners, it becomes a lot harder for us to be vulnerable in that way. And I think one thing that's very interesting about what you've done with Rosewell is kind of base the brand on creating space for that vulnerability. So it's interesting to me that you took that idea and then decided to focus on product on that basis. What was kind of the process you followed to, I guess, decide what products you wanted to make and how did you relate that back to that initial conversation? I think you basically just hit the nail on the head, right, is when you're single or dating and going out, it's almost like you have this freedom to act in whatever way possible. But the moment you have a, you're in a genuine, genuine relationship with a, you know, a serious partner, it almost becomes this secret that you couldn't possibly break, you know. And the thing is, if you do talk to groups of women and men, um, I have talked to as many different people as I can. It always comes back down to when you are in a long-term relationship and perhaps you aren't having you know, sex or physical intimacy as much as you normally did, it usually comes back to how someone's feeling about themselves as opposed to if a man isn't feeling, you know, particularly confident or a woman isn't feeling comfortable or, you know, that's a very gendered answer, but for the sake of brevity, it's almost like if you take the element of physical sex and physical intimacy and that very raw passion connection, when you're in a long-term relationship, it stops being so much about the lust element and it becomes about that deep-formed relationship. But for some reason, 99% of products in the market have completely forgotten that human intimacy is a huge part of sex and sex is incredibly human. Mm-hmm. So the, the, my, my approach to going down the product element was kind of based around that was there are great products already on the market. And admittedly, for some people, going into an adult store has you know no issue for them they're really comfortable they don't mind trying new things but that doesn't completely disregard the fact that a lot of people aren't comfortable with that and mm. they want to do that exploration side of things so while I was very product focused to begin with it became clear pretty much immediately that the bigger issue was why is intimacy non-existent in the world of sex mm. It's it's interesting what you say because obviously a lot of consumers of sex toys are people in relationships. Like if you look at the breakdown of the market, there is a huge proportion that are, and it's predominantly women in long-term relationships that make up the, the bulk of the market. But I think there's this interesting, I don't want to call it a phenomenon, but a trend at least where vibrators and, and sex toys of, of that sort are targeted towards women in relationships, but not to be used within the context of that relationship. It's almost like you use this secretly, you know, when your partner's like in the shower or gone to work or something, it's not really bringing it back to how do you actually use this with a partner and how do you create intimacy together? And I think it's interesting how you've really built a lot of elements into the brand that support that more in a way that I I haven't really seen other brands do 
as of yet? Um, thank you for saying that for a start. Very much appreciate it. <laughs> um, again, I think there are so many, and you this could this could end up in a 12-hour conversation, but <laughs> there are so many social barriers to that exact issue is, you know, you do look at a lot, a lot of brands, specifically in Australia, who have started in the past year, and it's almost like a Gen Z TikTok brand that they're targeting at young women. If you look at the average the average experience for a woman, a straight woman in a heteronormative relationship who decides to get a vibrator, you basically have one of two choices. You can either be sexually explicit or you can choose to be invisible. Mm. There's no real middle ground. So why, and again, we have this message for women, which is, okay, if you want to have sex and use a vibrator, you better be dressed in lingerie. Or if you want to be hyper-feminist and men don't matter and your sexuality and your pleasure trumps all, then it's almost going down the route of, okay, then sexuality is then combined with things like body positivity. But they're separate things. Not everything has to be bundled into this one element. It could simply be a couple or a person wanting to enjoy having sex or physical intimacy. And how do you create a product or an experience that doesn't isolate someone based off their gender or sexuality or comfort level. It's a very complex system that we're talking about. But mm. when you break it down into what Rosewell's producing, again, maybe maybe a woman buys a vibrator and her husband buys it again, just having an example. You don't want the, that to cause a problem of, oh, well, you know, a lot of conversations I've had, my friends have said, oh, well, if I bought a vibrator, my partner would be, you know, so upset. You know, I don't want to make him upset. And it's hard to change that narrative of, but he also can benefit from this. The same way that when it comes to sex sex toys and products specifically, there is a real gap for people not in heteronormative relationships. And anything that's targeted to people who aren't straight, again, it's we all put in these little silos and these little boxes and it's doing nobody any good. Yeah. That's a very good summation of the problem is it's it's the way we have chosen to deal with a lot of the social issues. It, it really exacerbates the problems that we claim to be trying to solve. And I think it's why you interest me as a brand is that you've identified that and just tried to like make it as innocuous as possible in a wonderful way. So I wanted to ask you more about why you chose to not gender the toys, and obviously you've just touched on that a little bit, but if you could also speak about the way your products aren't gendered, what that actually means it's sort of in practice and how you use them. Hmm. I think it's kind of a double-edged sword is we made a very conscious choice to create products that didn't fit a specific autonomy need. And, of course, for some people, they really need specific guidelines on hold this there do this here but again I think that kind of feeds into this issue of having to look or behave or do things in a certain way which again applies to anything everybody has different experiences everybody experiences pleasure and intimacy completely unique so what would work for one person definitely won't work for another so if you acknowledge that sex toys as a whole can do a lot of different things and a lot of different body parts. It doesn't serve anybody for me to say, okay, well, for example, you can use dip as an external clit stimulator. I could say that, but then it will completely isolate men or non-binary people from using it on other parts of their body that they'd get pleasure from. So it was a very conscious decision and that's why, you know, for example, we don't sell things like clit suckers because, mm. again, that obviously fits a very certain type of body. But if we're trying to bring back intimacy and connection and physical pleasure without it being filling these gaps of personas, it was such an obvious choice to go down that route. We are going to start talking a bit more about the choices that you can make with the products. But again, we're just trying to create something that anyone can find, anyone can envision themselves using and not have to feel like, well, I need this body or this type of mm. element of my body to experience pleasure for this specific reason. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it's a very interesting 
business choice, right? Because a lot of people would say, well, you're limiting sort of the, the pool of things that you could end up doing. But at the same time, you're sort of widening who you're speaking to. Was that a non-negotiable for you throughout the, the process of building the brand? Oh, absolutely. The thought that I've had in the back of my mind was a lot of people would argue, and coming from a marketing background, I would often argue the same thing, that doing a product, having a very specific niche is really important. And perhaps that would have been the right choice to go down. But I wanted to create something that my mum's friends could go by and also my friends who are fresh out of their teens could go by and no one would look at this and think, oh, this is a young person brand or this is an older person brand or, you know, this is just for women. It was very intentional. I think the broader the better. Who knows what will happen in the next couple of years if we go down a different route. But for now, I feel so strongly that Mm. anytime, for example, anytime that I'm out having coffee or I meet a friend of a friend of a friend and they find out what I'm doing, People are really open with their experiences. And the moment they see what Rosal actually looks like, their response has been nothing but positive. It has been like, oh my God. So it's not, it's not bright pink. It's not, you know, in a vacuum sealed plastic box. So you need five pieces to open. It's like, no, like it's just imagine going into a really simple, accessible, approachable, but like beautiful store and having someone really nice. Talk to you when you want to be talked to. Leave you alone when you want to be left alone. And you're just having, you know, you can, you can take the time to actually choose, A, do you even need this? B, is this something that fits your lifestyle? And C, is this the thing that you, you want? Like, is this, does our brand represent the ethos that you, that you want to purchase mm. into? So, yeah, long-winded answer, but definitely intentional and broad is better, in my opinion. No, I, I completely agree. It, it was something I was very aware of with, becoming as well even for example you look at the illustrations that that we use and and the brand as a whole it's um it's very non-gendered to the point that it's almost gender bending and we kind of really wanted to make it as playful and as explorative as possible because that's just not something that we had kind of seen in the category and a I think there is a market for it but b also I think it's it's a shame that that's not the case and that I think it it doesn't help our problems to be so specific about who we're trying to cater to. And I think it's this unfortunate thing where in sort of the startup community, the business world, you're pushed so strongly towards have, as you say, have a niche, have a very specific customer set, know who they are, know every single thing about who they are and what they do. But when it comes to sexuality, we know that no matter what attributes a person has and what kind of lifestyle they have, how they experience sex could be completely incongruent with the rest of their lifestyle choices. So you kind of have to give people space to to just be who they are and understand that sexuality is very diverse. <laughs> and I thought I thought by now we had kind of figured this out that yeah. just because of the way you present to the world or the relationship that you have is so far removed from sexuality. And yeah. you know, I think one of the biggest issues with sex toys is that when you kind of go down the this is a you know, have fun, play with your partner, et cetera, that without a doubt leads into, again, the heteronormity of beautiful person element where it's like becoming has that kind of fun element, but it's 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 removing anything that makes someone fit a mould. I think if you can basically create a brand that someone is attracted to in some way but they aren't trying to fit a mould, the brand is fitting them, yeah. How is that not the best case scenario? <laughs> no, I completely agree. I completely agree. But it, yeah, it doesn't seem to be the norm of, of the category at least. But I wanted to ask you, what were you doing before you started, before you started Rosewell? Obviously, it's quite clear that you have a skill set that's served you pretty well in doing what you've done. It's actually quite funny. I've always worked in marketing roles. And but I've never worked in retail. I've never had anything to do with e-com. I've always worked for professional services um, specifically. I was working um, at an investment firm when Rosewell kind of came to me. And funnily enough, the two women who were the people who helped me grow Rosewell actually were in my team at that role. And mm-hmm. they were the first people to hear about what I was planning on doing and helped me for like the first year. So I've always been in marketing, but 
you know, I was a graphic designer for a while. I've always been involved with digital. So I had a digital agency for two and a half years. So the branding and marketing element kind of always comes naturally to me, but it is a whole other scenario when it's your own brain. I'm constantly fearful of misstepping in some way or another. And Rosal is definitely a reflection of my aesthetic and now vice versa. And it's difficult to separate, especially while you're trying to scale. Yeah. It's hard to know how much of your brand is is you and it, it can be very hard to to delineate between those two things, as you say, when you're when you're starting out. Uh, but you mentioned you studied studied law as well. Oh yes, yeah, sorry, that's so funny. It feels like a lifetime ago. Um, yeah, I I always thought I would pursue law. I have an argument that marketing and law are very similar. They make your brain work in similar ways. Yeah. yeah, people seem to think marketing is very fun, but it's very black and white analytical database. No, before Rosewell, I was fixated on going into politics or law. And I have to give credit for it because if I didn't, if I wasn't so obsessive with legislation, I wouldn't have learned that there was none for sex toys. And that was a huge push for me to take this, to take this leap. Mm. But no, when I was, when Rosewell was still in its very early stages and I stopped working full time, I ended up taking another part-time role and freelancing to fund Rosewell. So for a solid year, I had, you know, two jobs freelanced, was studying law and running Rosewell. So <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it wasn't really possible to go down the, to go down the becoming a lawyer route at the same time as starting a business. No, no, but I I think it's it's important to talk about the uh, the busyness involved in in starting a business and how difficult it it can be and how hard you have to work to to self fund these kinds of things. But I, yeah, I like the point that marketing and law are not not too different. I completely agree that that's very much the case. Mm. I wanted to I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Rosewell's sort of ethos. One thing that I find very interesting about how you articulate your brand, and, and I think the way you articulate some of your ethos, it makes sense to me that um, you're interested in sort of law and politics and social ideas, is this idea of, of sex care. So you're the first brand that I've seen really using this term, sex care. Can you explain what you mean by that? Of course. When I thought about where sex kind of fits into our everyday life, it fits into the same things as what what other elements of health do we incorporate, right? We have mental health care, physical health. We have period care. It's It's almost like I feel like when you use the word sexual wellness, it's so specific. It's It's wellness but in this very, very tiny portion of your life, whereas to me, sex care incorporates the care that we take around our sex lives. And that doesn't just incorporate physical intimacy. It also means the relationships we have with our own bodies, our own sexuality, the relationships that we have with our partners, whether long-term or dating. That element of care, I feel, is so much more important than the all-too-common wellness logo that's applied to a lot of things. So again, that was very intentional with trying to change that mentality of okay, wellness incorporates, you know, your green juices in the morning and being very beautiful on Instagram, et cetera. But taking actual care of yourself and taking care of the way you have sex, taking care of the way you feel about your own sexuality. Mm. I think sexual wellness is still, I mean, for you and I, we've probably been around this for a long time, but for people who are having a first introduction to anything related to sex, sexual wellness is still very much the reigning supreme terminology. But it wouldn't surprise me if people started shifting away from the wellness label. Yeah, I mean, it's the I kind of akin it to um, how a lot of people are starting to shift language from sex positive to sex neutral because there's a growing acknowledgement that when you say something's positive or negative, you're you're putting it on a binary as opposed to just allowing things to exist as they are. Uh, and I feel like wellness is is a very similar kind of thing. There's it has a lot of baggage tied to it. It kind of conjures up images of Instagram models drinking their, their juices and going to Pilates and, and all of these kinds of things. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. But it's not necessarily what taking care of yourself means for everyone. So I hope that there will be more of that sort of 
linguistic shift because I think, you know, language does matter, you know, words are not innocent and they do impact how we relate to ourselves and, and our environment. So I think sex kids is an interesting thing. And even with the term um, body positivity, it's such a important thing that we've all started to embrace, acknowledging that that doesn't have to fit a certain criteria, but perhaps some people might wake up in the morning and not feel particularly positive about their body. Does that mean that they no longer exist in that that world? Of course not. You know, some people love having morning routines and waking up at 5 a.m. and having green juices. And that is so, so wonderful if it makes them happy. But that doesn't have to be aspirational for everybody else. The same way some people might feel completely comfortable with their bodies and, you know, never, never be bothered by their weight or their body hair or anything like that. But that doesn't mean that other people aren't. It's just, yeah, taking a couple of steps back and going, just provide a product or a service or support and let people figure it out for themselves. Well, then this is this is a part of part of me often wonders if obviously identity politics is is pretty prevailing and, and rife at the moment. You know, we we are asked to take a stance on everything from sharing our pronouns very like explicitly and publicly through to you know, what we have for breakfast or whatever vibrator we use. But it's actually taking a step back and saying, people don't necessarily need to share these things or, or know these things. You can change what you're into from day to day. And it's it's just taking some of the the connotations out of what we share and how we live our lives that I think is is a really useful thing because it's what allows us freedom to change and understand ourselves better as we go through life because we're not going to stay the same at all stages. No, and even that, it's almost like this personification of our own aspiration in a way. Yeah. But some people might might love sharing that and and there's no, again, there's no issue with that. But it's almost like even you and I being in this situation, having businesses, I am I'm constantly aware of how many specifically women who have started businesses have said the wrong thing or done the wrong thing and been completely obliterated. Yeah. So for me, part of it's like throughout my entire life, I've always been, I I feel things very, very deeply and it does bother me thinking about people not liking me. I'll admit that wholeheartedly that I really want people to like me and I really want people to like what I'm doing Mm. and I'm going to make mistakes on the way. There's no doubting it. But I think about people who have been completely dismissed from every conversation about intimacy and I wouldn't want to create something that feels that fire you know um taking a massive sidestep here there's a there's a company called Handy and I'm sure you've heard about them yes yeah for me I wouldn't want to compete with them I wouldn't want to say to people I'm creating sex toys for for people living with a disability because I don't I don't want to take away from someone in that space right and I think being very like aware of of where Roseville kind of fits in the scheme of products and services and what kind of role I can play I'm just very aware of not wanting to do the wrong thing and wanting to create something that feels really safe and welcoming for everybody without going too far down the edge and isolating other people it's such a finicky way to run a business these are the businesses we want existing in the world, right? That are self-aware and also aware of what else is in the market and how we can actually sort of work together as a community and an industry to to serve people best because that's, you know, that's in everyone's interests, our own, other companies and and the customers' interests too. So it's it's a balance for sure. And um, it means constantly revisiting uh, what you're doing, questioning your own thinking about what you're saying and what you're projecting. So it's tiring. Sometimes I'm sure you found the same thing. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Very much so. Yeah. I also wanted to speak to you about the actual process of making your toys. How do you choose what designs you want to create? What sort of shapes you want to make? Is it just through talking to people? What's your kind of process there? So right now, as we talk, Roswell has two products and we've had them for pretty much since we've launched, so over a year. They were kind of the MVP for us. When Roswell was just an idea, we went really heavily onto surveying people, so both through 
our own circles, going on social media, going on groups of, of people through like paid surveys. And we basically just collated this huge amount of data to help us choose what product was missing. Because again, it's the actual products that are available on the market. There are some really amazing products. There's no, there's no dispute that we're as well products are the best in the world. But when you start off with what people want, we asked a question, for example, does it bother you if the if a toy isn't medical grade silicone? And I'm not joking, 55% of respondents wrote, what is that? Mm. So first, first obvious answer was okay, when you go by products on the market right now, the materials are sometimes jelly, which we know is porous and causes huge bacterial issues, or it has this body safe class classification on it, which we now know doesn't really mean anything. So we kind of started with what seems to be the most important element and it became materials size. So a lot of people said that they wanted a product that was small enough and not, you know, phallic in design or huge. Um, so with materials and size, that was pretty much the starting point of going, what kind of products can be produced that anybody of any gender could use? And that's how we came up with, with Dip and Bend. The actual process of developing a product is you have to be very naive. It is incredibly time consuming, capital intensive, and you know, 99% of manufacturers will let you down. I think we went through close to a hundred manufacturers. And the thing is, the things that were really important to us, <laughs> I have I have boxes at my house with hundreds, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of samples. But the thing is, every time we found a factory that kind of agreed with our ethos, which was making sure that the types of molds that we use had really minimal waste, making sure that the factory was run, for example, without using fossil fuels, all the way through to making sure that the factory hit all of the modern slavery act standards. We would have to get them audited, of of course, by third-party groups. Mm. That in itself is so expensive that if you aren't if you aren't prepared, just say you want to start and just say anybody listening to this really wants to be in this industry, definitely don't want to dissuade anyone from going. But if you think that, you know, $10,000 will get you a product, it's going to cost about 80 minimum because there's just so much research and legwork behind that from, yeah, the materials, the size, the shape to the mod- the motors. Like you can usually buy like a specific type of motor that creates a specific type of vibration, but you have to go through and work out what's like, for example, for us, it was really important that people who were buying it who might have housemates, your housemates couldn't hear you using the vibrator. So making sure that it went under a certain level of decibels, making sure that the vibration wouldn't be so intense that your hand would hurt afterwards. Oh my goodness. It was a very long process. (laughs) Yeah. I think I worked on it for about full time for close to a year, just finding a factory. And of course, it's next to impossible to have those kinds of products made in Australia, which was was the goal for the first you know three to four months before reality hit me. It's still a goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the process was you basically needed to pick whatever five standards you have, whatever that looks like, and then mm-hmm. find someone who mimics those ethos. Yeah, it's an it's an interesting thing because it very much mimics what someone like Laura DiCarlo said when when I was speaking to her, which is just the the amount of sampling, iterating, testing, understanding compromise, like balancing strength of vibration with quietness. That's a, a huge balancing act that requires a lot of time, and as a result of that, a lot of money. With the sex toy industry, there is a distinct lack of transparency around how the products are made. It's it's not subject to the same level of scrutiny as, say, the fashion and beauty industries are, are becoming. Obviously, hopefully, things will shift, and I think they will. So where did you even start to sort of look when you were looking for, for example, manufacturers that were sort of ethical in a, a range of different ways that you just spoke to for us it was finding a factory through all of the means of channels buying agents sourcing agents factory direct sales agents 
talking to virtually everyone I could and going, what actually matters? For me, it was finding a manufacturer who really prioritised, for example, silicone injections. Um, I'm not sure how many people, if you don't work in this industry, it's difficult to know, but when you get a product like ours, which is 100% silicone, the silicone is actually injected into a mould. You can buy a lot of cheap products, but those moulds only last maybe 400 times that can actually be filled and they have to make a new mold. And those those moulds are not good for the environment to make. So trying to find a factory who accepted the fact that we wanted a really high quality mold so that we didn't have to constantly make new ones, for example, mm. all the way through to being comfortable with allowing us to send not one but two independent auditors to make sure that it hit all of our um, – making sure, like, for example – all the, all the packaging that our packaging factory used was FSC certified or at least 100% recycled, that it never once touched plastic, that there was nothing but soy-based inks, all the way through to getting getting products from overseas to Australia requires logistics and freight. Trying to find a way of getting freight here without it being hugely detrimental to the environment required us getting help from an advisor. It's it's a really difficult thing to do. And in terms of, you know, a lot of brands slapping sustainability on it, and I think we're all becoming a bit more aware, it is very hard with our industry because it is easy to make something look however you want it to look. Yeah. For us, it was really important that the day we launched was also the day that we launched a return program. So anytime someone was finished with a Rosewell product, and we want them to last for years and years and years, that they could send it back to us who would cover the cost of the shipping and we would actually cover the cost of them being completely broken down and recycled. Mm. And then in October last year, which is when we hit the one-year mark, I just thought there's there's got to be a better way of doing this. So then we opened it to any single person with any kind of product has to fill out a form on our website. We will pay for them to have a shipping label that gets sent to us. We will incur the cost of that shipping or they'll incur the cost of it being recycled. And at the moment, I think we've saved like, Maybe like I think we're up to forty or forty-two kilos of sex toys from going into landfill. That's great, and it's it's hysterical because at least a couple of times a day we get people from the US, the UK filling out this form. So there's obviously a huge demand mm-hmm. for it. People don't want to keep putting their, you know, I think we're all told that when your Apple Mouse runs out of batteries, you don't put the batteries in the bin. Exactly. But for some reason, that messaging hasn't been applied to a sex toy, which is essentially an electronic device. So yeah, making sure that our production had as minimal environmental impact as we could reasonably manage, making sure that our freight wasn't just throwing anything at the wall and rushing it, incurring the most the most amount of stops, for example, and then making sure that yes, acknowledging that we are producing a product, but making sure that there was a there was an end an end of life care cycle, and you know our our boxes that we produce, a lot of people really go heavily on packaging, which. I love doing, but I want people to be able to reuse that box and re- and have a storage bag, like an organic cotton storage bag. And anyone who's bought dip in the past six months will notice that the manual still says bean on it, which was our original name for it. And a few people have said, oh, well, why does the manual have bean? And it's like throwing out hundreds of manuals for a name change just doesn't align with sustainability. Like we'll use everything until it's gone. Because there is a lack of transparency and it can be hard to tell the difference between quality product, non-quality product, someone might take a pretty shonky, poor quality product and still charge a similar price for it and mark it up hugely so that obviously they can make more money. Are there things that people can look for, identifiers, about what is quality and what is not in the physical product when they're looking to buy them? Oh, when it comes to specifically sex toys, I think making sure that it's really obvious what kind of battery is inside, what kind of materials are used, the warranty that's applied to it, and read the fine print about batteries. I've seen quite a few brands that say, you know, if this product has ever run out of battery, then it's dead. Like there's nothing you can do about it. So for a start, in terms of materials and battery, you want to make sure that if you're going to buy a product, and buying sex toys should be an investment. We are not promoting huge consumption of, you know, buying 100 sex toys a, a year that cost $20. So being mindful of materials, battery, warranty, 
the length of battery. And then also, there it is no secret that there are more and more people entering this space. I think if you have, if you really care about your own consumptions and you want to support small businesses or businesses that are trying to do the right thing, find the ones that are that are honest about who they are. I think it's very easy to see brands that are, you know, maybe they say they're for women empowerment, but they're actually run entirely by men. Or you might see a company that's grown exponentially in the past year and they're usually hugely VC-backed firms that are just the profit is all they care about. For a brand like Rosewell, I know that we could we could probably go raise money and grow really fast. But for me, so sustainable growth and feeling okay about what we're producing at the end of the day is the most important thing for me. And if people have that in alignment, just trying to find those kinds of founders who actually give a shit about what they're selling you and not selling a product at $300 that'll die in three months, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's on the tech point, it's an interesting thing. You know, we're happy to spend $2,000 on an iPhone, but you know, someone asks you to spend more than $150 on a vibrator and all of a sudden that's a huge ask. It's like, these are pieces of technology. So it's almost like there needs to be a re-education of the fact that there is a, a quality cost correlation and that has an environmental sustainability kind of impact where they will last longer if you're buying from the right brands. But you could also look at places or brands, for example, that are slow and sustainable that are then copied by fast-moving brands, right? Yeah. For us, we are the total opposite. We are taking a product that has for decades and decades remained unchanged with these legacy high turnover cheap shitty materials and we are taking a product that has for the most part been very cheap and shrouded in secrecy and not only trying to make them more accessible and bring them into light but improve them so Mm. it's almost like mental gymnastics oh it's an expensive product i'm going to go buy a cheap knockoff but now we're like no 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 here's a product that you could buy for 20 dollars, but it now costs this and then having to educate the customer on why that is it is a total it's kind of the opposite way that a product would normally go to market, right? Exactly. Yeah. I think it's having conversations like this so that people kind of understand that, that that's the case because, you know, businesses usually don't have an incentive to be honest about how they're doing things. So that's, I think, why yeah. we've landed in the point that we have. And I wanted to I wanted to pick up on something that you mentioned before, obviously, around this still being an incredibly male-dominated industry despite appearances sometimes suggesting otherwise what has your experience sort of been as a a young cis woman coming in as a founder oh it had been that fun I'll be honest for a start the investment firm that I mentioned I was working at this is a true story when I started Rosewell I didn't tell anyone at my work I was the only woman in a management role and I came to work one day it was like secret Santa and they had gifted me a leather sex gag with the words, shut the fuck up on it. And they said, oh, well you sell vibrators now. So you should be fine with this. That was probably, that should have been a clear indication. Yeah. (laughs) That should have been a clear indication for the path that I was about to go on. Yeah. Look, to be completely honest, for a long time, I never really spoke about this because I didn't want to come across as, being petty or anything like that. But I think I think it really does need to be spoken about. Okay. One is, yes, I'm young. Yes, I'm a woman. But I also, I'm not hocking $1.50 products for $200 and giving influencers a 40% off discount code and not hiring a single woman. I am not, you know, a handful of young white men with $30 million creating products that are literally mold-for-mold carbon copies of four other brands that are owned by women. It makes me livid because Mm. I don't want to have an issue with people in this space. But it's the reality is that I'm trying to do things sustainable and slowly and inclusive and it's difficult to not be impacted by the number of very, very well-off men who just... It's almost like, and I don't know if this is the same for you, but maybe because of the fact that I've had to fight so hard is 
I'm almost paralyzed by decision sometimes. And I often question my own worthiness of doing this and thinking, does anybody care about what I'm doing? Am I, am I the right person for this? And then I just watch these companies just so brazenly mm. say women empowerment and there's, there's no, and everyone has, everyone who has access to ASIC with $9 can download a shareholder document and figure out who owns these companies. It's $9. I've bought them all. There's not a lot of women. Even though it all looks like it is, there's not a lot of us. Yeah, I was just going to say for for people listening, because obviously we both understand this because we work in the industry, can you break down the landscape of sort of the sex industry right now? Obviously you mentioned that there are sometimes companies that appear female facing, but are in fact owned and run by men. And obviously without naming names or anything like that, can you sort of break down how that plays out and what that looks like and also how pervasive it actually is? Mm, It is hard not to get too detailed. This is probably the most vulnerable I've ever been on a podcast. (laughs) The The landscape of sex toys in terms of product and brand in Australia is probably the most oversaturated space by men. And that is for one very specific reason, is that the industry in itself has exploded. It is tripling. I think it's currently worth like more than $70 billion. Whereas for me, when I actually, I'm going to preface this by telling you a story. I have a friend of mine who is overseas at the moment and he has an idea for an intimacy app. And he spoke to a couple of friends about it and people have offered him money to do it. Whereas back in the day when I started Roseville, I wanted to launch a platform that people could get accessible, really affordable advice about their relationships in turn, and, and also have a product to purchase. Not one person wanted to hear from me. That is probably the most accurate depiction of what it is like is I can prove to you that what we are doing has huge growth opportunities but nobody really wants to talk to me. Whereas there are people at the moment who have brands. Let's say there are three three prominent ones in Australia right now. Two of them are branded with pink and young girls and lots of bright colours and they pump out products with massive influencer partnerships. Yet there are no women who own that company. There are there, Women are not benefiting from that in any way, shape or form. Then there are other companies who have obviously seen that there's an industry that is booming and have desperately wanted to capitalise on it. And instead of taking any progressive, innovative, socially conscious pathway, they've just found, okay, well, these are some products that do really well, copy them, sell them for cheaper, and we don't really, really, really care about anything else. It's slow, hardcore growth sell at the end or exit or whatever. And that's fine. That that business model exists in every category, in every industry. But when you're in it, it is intensely frustrating. And I know that it shouldn't bother me, but it does because I don't know how I could go to sleep thinking that, you know, I'd put, it's almost like if I said Roswell was, you know, founded by a man, but it, but there are no men who work here. I, I I don't really understand how I don't understand how anyone can can comfortably like for lack of a better term get away with it. So mm-hmm. to answer your question in a very long-winded way, the landscape has been dominated by men for decades and decades and decades. And even now, when it looks like women are starting to take more of an involvement, it is ten percent of what you see. We are so rare, and the women who have been doing it not specifically in Australia, but overseas, they are getting ruled by men with tons of money copying. It's a very vicious cycle. Yeah. I don't know if you've experienced this as well. I feel like we've had previous conversations where you've mentioned that that you do, where as sort of a genuine female founder, it's very hard to know how to put yourself forward because you don't want to participate in what is essentially the re-perpetuation of exploitation of women in a different way, Mm. albeit they're being paid and these kinds of things. 
but they are being used to face a company that is run by men and making a different kind of claim about that. Do you want to put yourself out there and participate in it? Or do you want to say, this isn't actually about gender or anything. This is about how I've chosen to conduct my business. These are the principles that matter to to us. And let's let that be the focus. It's a very fine line for me. And if you had asked me this question six months ago, I would have said that I don't want to be visible in any way, shape or form because I am acutely aware that at the same, at the end of the day, I am white. I actually am queer, but because I'm married to a man, people make funny assumptions about me. Mm. I'm just acutely aware that I'm I'm still white. I still have a level of privilege. And again, I question my worthiness all the time. So, um, you know, I've been posting on my personal Instagram saying, do people want to hear how I spend my day? And the overwhelming answer is yes. So there is a very, there is an emerging part of me that is acknowledging that if I stand by Rosewell's values and I want people to buy from Rosewell because of our ethos, I think I have to have a level of visibility. And I can't be worried about vulnerability and intimacy if I don't sit in the own discomfort of being vulnerable myself. And as long as I try and do everything with, real intention and acknowledging that I'm going to make mistakes and acknowledging that, you know, some people might not like me. I think I have to learn to be comfortable with that because I spend my days asking people to be comfortable with their own sexuality and issues they have with their partners and themselves. How can I lead by example? I mean, like, how can I, um, if I don't live that way, how can I expect anybody else to? Yeah. I've had a, exactly the same mental process over the last few months of sort of coming to terms with to what extent do I I want to participate and it's it's the thing if you do have to be an active participant in your own brand if you're sharing a particular message then you kind of have a responsibility to embody that I think but yeah it's it's interesting how in this industry there's often a lot of front footing of women who embody that but you look at the actual structure of the company and it it just doesn't land and you know I've shared some of the stuff with with friends before and they've been really shocked by it (laughs) yeah are there any other things that have kind of surprised you about the industry that you didn't necessarily expect coming into it working in marketing I knew there were going to be significant limitations on what I could and couldn't do but what I hadn't realized was how many people would be uncomfortable with what I was doing which just added a bit of fuel to the fire, I suppose. Mm. I'm surprised at how many people are either really, really willing to share their stories with me completely unprompted and how many people it's just so easy to make an assumption. I watch people's faces when I say, oh, I own a sex care brand. I I watch them. I watch the thought process of, of yellow store or corner store or sex store or bright pink I watch it and then I say to them oh so Rosewell's um we kind of think it's more refined and a bit more modern and there's not a lot of bright colors it's very inclusive and then when I show people it's like a lightning bolt of oh my god why did I never think about this of course we need this mm-hmm. um so yeah, I've been surprised of of how difficult it's been to market it but I'm also very surprised at how receptive it is when you have a one-on-one conversation with someone and in terms of the industry as a whole I like to think that we are going in the right direction and I think with people trying to do the right thing for the consumer and having a very human-centric focused approach I think we can achieve amazing things but I'm also acutely aware that if we don't have more transparent conversations on the fact that sometimes you buy products that are quite literally dangerous um, I think we just might end up being another industry that's greenwashed and not transparent. Mm, mm. Yeah. Well, this could be naive, but it's what I put my hope on is that the brands that are committed to longevity will simply be around longer. Obviously, that's not going to be the case for all. There'll still always be companies and players that are, are taking advantage of a situation. But you, my hope is that there is longevity and actually giving a fuck, basically. <laughs> Oh, and like I don't know why this never came up more often before I started, but you need so much 
hardcore resilience and self-discipline and money. I, for a long time, I thought about not telling people this or trying to stay within the wanting people to be really inspired by me. But now I'm just very, I kind of don't want to almost revolt against the aspirational element, but Rosewell doesn't make tons and tons of money. And it's very hard to find people who want to work in this industry. It's very hard to develop products while trying to run a business. You know, I think we've got close to, I think we've either got 10 or 11 products dropping this year. And that has been from 16 hour days minimum every single day. So I think I, there are so many people in, in the industry at the moment, especially like women in Australia, are absolutely killing it. I think that if we all work together and don't compete, I can't even imagine like what we could actually achieve. Yeah, it's, that stuff's agree. very exciting for me. Yeah, I, I agree. Mm-hmm. But it's the hustle and it like like in the very true sense of the word. Oh my god. <laughs> and it's not it's not always particularly glamorous and it does come at quite a significant personal cost. You know, when I started becoming, I thought, oh, I've got this idea. It'll take sort of like a couple of months, it'll be up and running, I'll be able to like quit my job and make money off and straight away. And it's just like the most naive thing. But no, when we um I remember the first time we talked about her as well was like mid 2019 and I honestly thought that we would be thriving by the following Valentine's Day we didn't launch until October of the following year and I look back on that and it is absolutely hysterical yeah and even like for example this is another funny story so because we do small batch orders with our manufacturer um I had made the assumption that I could order from overseas and have products just delivered to my house that's not how it works. You need a receiving dock with a forklift and you need someone to control pallets. And I remember we'd ordered from our manufacturer. He was he was hysterical. He thought it was the funniest thing ever. Me trying to call four logistic companies to have the address changed. That kind of stuff, like no one teaches you. It's yeah. complete throw spaghetti at a wall and hope to God it sticks. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you've felt this way, but I think if I hadn't known and not been as naive as I was, I probably wouldn't have done it. I see some companies now that I didn't know about when I started. And if I could go back in time, I would have just found these companies, messaged the founders and been like, I want to work for you. If I was doing it now and didn't have a really very specific reason for what I was doing and it didn't just it wasn't just hooking a carriage onto the back of a truck. If, it, if there was an underlining desperate need to start something new, I'd understand it. But now I would rather other people of any gender, any age who are thinking about doing this just to literally message me and say, I'm obsessed with this concept. Can I be involved? That to me is so much more fun. Being, being a founder, again, as you said, it's an incredible personal cost. The, the money that you need, the time that you need, everything else, get sacrificed every element of your personal life essentially disintegrates so party message anyone wanting to start something just find a brand that you're obsessed with and just work on that with them ask for equity ask for salaries whatever you need it's just so much easier (laughs) than starting from scratch yeah no it's it's very true (laughs) and before we finish up just wanted to ask you what's next for Roswell? What's in store? I'm actually really excited for this year. And I was going to do this really cute thing where I didn't tell anybody products until they were like a week away from dropping, but I think that's silly. Um, <laughs> yeah, we have three vibrators coming out this year. We are also producing condoms, which has been in the works since before vibrators. Thank you, TGA. Bringing <laughs> up. <laughs> We're bringing out a couple more oils and we're bringing out butt plugs and we're also bringing out a new product called Pinch, which is probably the closest thing to the bondage kind of side of things or BDSM, that kind of element. Yeah. And we're also doing three different size, very small introductory butt plugs. Oh, and we've also got um, four new card decks coming out. (laughs) So much. Oh, and we're launching um, in the end of February, we're launching in the US. So it's really exciting for us, yeah. Very exciting things. 
the social and environmental impact of the companies you buy from matters to you, I'd recommend approaching the sex industry with a level of scepticism. Don't be fooled by the pinks, teals and slogans. Do further research before purchasing. Hopefully one day you won't have to. If you ever have any questions about the sex toys or sex industry, either Rosewell or Becoming are always here to help you. You can reach me personally at 1-800-GET-OFF. I'm all ears. A big thank you for listening to The Philosophy of Sex and a big thank you to my guest, Alicia Williams. You can find more details about Rosewell in the show notes. You can find us on Instagram at becoming.me or visit our site for tailored toys and personalised packs. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Thanks to Zoltan Fetcho who edited this episode and wrote the music. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so please leave us a review and subscribe if you don't want to miss any new episodes. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.